0: everyone this week on lots of beach you'll love this guy you'll remember him from back in the day when he was on the today show reading the sport and doing various other things he's now also on sky doing the racing and early mornings on the weekend so in the beach shack is tim gilbert he tells his story from growing up all through his media career So now let's sit back and have a listen to my chat with Tim Gilbert. Today in the Beach Shack, I've got Tim Gilbert. Now, he's been in the media for many, many years and he's got some really good stories. So welcome, Tim.
1: Nice to be here, Bruce. It makes me feel old. It's been uh, 30-odd years since it all started
0: for me back in Melbourne after university, but uh, time does go quick, doesn't it? It just flies by. Mate, it does go quick. Now, you grew up in Sydney, so tell us about growing up in your early years
1: yeah i was i was born and raised in Guildford in western sydney and half lebanese half irish sort of very catholic upbringing in the sense of my mother was a maronite like from lebanese and dad was roman catholic They they said the uh they said the rosary until you know not long before my mother passed away a few years ago god rest her soul but it was a it was a busy and boisterous and wonderful environment we uh had six kids. I'm one of six, so five boys, one girl. Many people will know my younger brother, Kieran, who's the chief anchor for Sky News. And, uh, yeah, the backyard it turned into the, the Gilbert Cricket Ground or the Gilbert Rugby League Ground. So there were fierce battles, five boys, one girls. One girl, my sister got involved. So went to Guildford St. Pats and then ended up at Patricia Brothers Fairfield. Now, Patricia Brothers Fairfield was a huge rugby league school back then. I was in year five when Sterlo was actually in year 12. And in short, like, I obviously am a sports journalist, journalist primarily, but my ill fated football career finished <laughs> at school. We made the Commonwealth Cup grand final in front of 25,000 people. And unfortunately, uh, I missed the tackle that let them score the winning try. So uh, I went into journalism. <laughs> they, they wouldn't have been happy, would they? No, no, no. <laughs> brother Richard had a bit of a crack at me. But um, I, uh, yeah, that, uh, it's a long time ago, 1985. But uh, yeah, look, and look, a, a lot of people. Love their sport when they're young. I, I still have wonderful memories of of playing football and cricket as a kid.
0: Mate, so was it always on the radar to go into media? Like when you left school, did you do other jobs before you hit the media uh, area? Well,
1: I, When I was at school and uni, I did all sorts of jobs because, you know, being one of six and, you know, money was – if you wanted money, you needed to go out and get it. So I did everything from, you know, paper runs to – working in cake shops to market research to milk runs. I I, uh, had an ongoing job at the old Carlton United Brewery, which now doesn't run anymore. It was up at Broadway, if you remember, when you drove past there and you could smell all the hops. I worked in their mailroom through the process of particularly university. And then when I finished, look, I did a communications degree. So I always had in the back of my mind that I I would love to work in the media because, um, you know, I was addicted to Rex Mossop and Sports World and, you know, my mum and dad, dad particular, would say, you know, if I had to do a thesis on the Don Lane show, I would have got an A, but I was <laughs> otherwise not a great student because uh, I just didn't do a lot of work. But So it was always in my system. Anytime time I had to sort of do an assessment standing in front of people or talking, I always did well. Often when I had to write it down, I, 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 I took a while to get a hang of it. And, you know, as a journalist, it took me a while to sort of slow my mind down to – to write the words, but saying them has always been something that I've always been reasonably adept at. So yeah, look, I would say I always wanted to. And then um, I I worked a couple of jobs in PR, which I really didn't like my couple of years out of uni, then went to Max Rowley's Media Academy and um, worked on my voice, Radio 2MR, which was down there in Redfern. And like many people did back then, and I got two jobs on the same day. I got one at Hits and Memories 2GN, and I got one at Charters Towers. So I thought I'd go to Goulburn, which is um, two hours south of Sydney. And that's where my career started. Uh, oh, I'd have to be 32 years ago now. And what, what were you doing down there? Were you, was it
0: to do a sport?
1: No, no. it was. A, it's a small radio station and I you do everything. And that's part of the real benefit of the way that we used to all come through in this industry is you, you had to do everything. So I did a morning show, like ran from nine till two which was a combination of playing music There wasn't really talk back. You'd do a few interviews like John Fay, I think was a local premier and he lived locally. So he'd come in and, but you'd also interview everyone. I remember interviewing, you know, Dr. Hawke and John Williamson. And I think I did one of the last interviews with Fred Hollows, uh, God rest his soul. So you get that great opportunity to, to do all sorts of things. You'd read ads, you'd write ads, you read news, you sell ads. So it was one of those places where you get a full brief. Income wasn't very strong. I think mm-hmm. it was on about 11 or 12 grand a year, but I hosted the Okie Dokie Karaoke at the Astor Hotel down the road for 50 bucks and a beer voucher. So <laughs> they used to supplement the income. But it was interesting. You know, I try to tell my kids these days that I, I had an old Sigma that wouldn't go backwards. I didn't have enough money to fix the reverse, so the reverse <laughs> went in a so for 6 months I had to drive forwards or park far enough away from a car or a wall <laughs> just to just to keep moving. Bit of an anecdote life <laughs> really Bruce.
0: Great stuff. But working in the country I've noticed there's a lot of weird regional gigs that come up. Was there anything that you had to do in those days? Well, it was it's an interesting
1: space isn't it because and it was back then I I I presume the local radio station and the newspaper still serve a very similar purpose because you used to read the funeral announcements. You used to update, you know, all the the rural news as well, which reminds me of a story of when I first got to Goulburn. I was doing the five days, as I say, of the morning show, but I also had to do a Saturday morning shift. And I'd sort of had a few too many bourbons, I think, at the Okie Dokie karaoke. <laughs> and I've slept in. So I've only been there a month. So this is my dream job. And I've woken up like three minutes before... I had to be in the studio and take the overnight tape off because there was no overnight announcer that six hours of music played. Anyway, I'm driving down, bloody bursting down in this Sigma... And I heard the last song fade out, you know, went through the tears of a the horse no name, It was nothing. So for the next five minutes, the radio station was off. I go in there and there's alarms going off and I run upstairs and I think, oh, my job's gone. And I chucked in that Julian Lennon song, Salt Water, which you'll probably remember, people of our generation, was a rubbish song. And then they wowed into gear and I just sat back in the chair and I thought, oh, my career's over here. Because what I had to do at that point at six o'clock was put the rural news on, which Farmers, obviously, were hanging out for to hear what the price of, of you know, different livestock was and where things were at. So I I just waited for the bosses to ring and I thought, oh, my job's gone here. I'm done. My dream job. I, I had two phone calls two from two farmers and one bloke rings up and g'day mate I'm out here big away something wrong with your radio this morning didn't get the rural news and I said how is it now mate he goes oh she's beautiful I said I'll just lift up the volume for me I said oh mate look there's a bit of a transmitter problem around there at six o'clock I'll pop that rural news for you back (laughs) on at eight o'clock I got a very similar phone call from another farmer down in I think it was Taralga and no one else rang. So I, I quickly realised <laughs> that I hadn't hit Broadway. There was uh, arguably two people listening to the radio <laughs> station that morning. So.
0: Beautiful, but true it, story. Do you think starting there, we, as you're saying, you, you had to do everything that helped you in your later careers? Oh,
1: I think yeah, and it still helps me to today. You know, like I run my own business these days, and obviously do a bit of Sky News work, do the weekend breakfast show, and we've got a horse racing show called Racing Dreams. But I I sort of contract myself to a number of businesses and do podcast work myself with Shane Lee, the former cricketer. But I think that all that work, all that experience is fantastic right down. You know, if I'm hosting a function for a thousand people, you still lean on what you did back then and, and how you got yourself out of corners and And I think that's one of the great things about a background like that for media. And radio is really good for TV, uh, particularly live TV, because you don't have any problems ad-libbing. If things all go to pot and the auto cue goes down and, you know, you know that you can rely on yourself to get yourself out of trouble just to keep talking. And particularly if there's someone there with you, you can then start conducting an interview and move the subject around. So I think that uh, it helps every day. Mm
0: And do you find TV's harder or radio?
1: I don't know. It depends what you're doing. I find any time I go back to radio, I really love it. I think it's, you know, it's like everything. It's like your first love. I do really reflect on some of the wonderful TV moments. Like I was at Channel 9 for 23 years and covered the Vancouver Winter Olympics and the London Summer Olympics and many trips to India producing cricket. I look all sorts of experiences, State of Origins, countless test matches, countless. It depends on what the job is, I think, as to say what's hard and what's easy. And when you get to a certain level, I think, in any job, it's more about the pressure that you might put on yourself for the level of performance because I think unless it's really right out there, nothing is particularly difficult. It's really how you judge yourself on your performance rather than whether it's hard or easy.
0: But when did the big break come when you started, as you said, you've done so many years at Channel 9. How did that come about?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting yarn. On this one too. I was working for 2UE. So I'd, I'd worked my way back from Goulburn and did an overnight show at 2UE, which was syndicated. So this was a music show. So I gradually worked my way back to Sydney. And then out of that, the, the overnight sort of network was in the same station as the 2UE station. And I got talking to Andrew Moore and to you know John Brennan, the then program director, and then eventually an opportunity came to be a scorer reporter on the great summer of cricket in '93 94 with Doug Walters and Norman May and Norman O'Neill and Kerry O'Keefe. So this was when New Zealand and South Africa played Australia 30 years ago. Well, the South Africans are coming out in a few weeks' time, aren't they? Yep. But uh, so I stayed there for a few years and I anchored the continuous call with Ray Hadley and those guys and... Then I was over at the World Cup in 96, a few years later, in India and Pakistan, and Australia was playing its first game against Kenya in a place called Vijigapatnam, like a small Indian town of about 4 million people. <laughs> and, and, and what happened was, and this, this is a true story again, and this is what happens with these sliding door moments in, in an industry like this. All the commentators, including Richie Beno, Tony Gregg, many of them are gone now, obviously, But Ian Chappell was there, Ravi Shastri, Sonny Gavaskar. They all got caught up in a massive travel drama and they couldn't get to the ground. So the night before, we're on the Kingfishers having a few beers and the TV producer says, Tim, have you ever done commentary before on TV? And I said, no, I haven't. And and I said, oh, I'm keen though. You know, keen. I was in my 20s. I saying I can do anything. So I guess, well, sure enough, tomorrow we need you because they're not going to get here until 20 minutes after the start of play. So if you go back to the old tapes and the archives at Channel 9, the first 20 minutes of that game, I was the lead commentator. Now the commentary, Bruce, was rubbish. (laughs) I was nervous as all get up and I had uh, Morris Adumbe opening the bowling when he was 12th man. But what happened three months later was the powers that be in there at Wide World of Sports saw enough initiative in me to say, okay, here's an entry-level job. Come on as a reporter producer on the then Wide World of Sports, which of course had the five-hour show on Saturday and then the two-hour show on a Sunday and, at the golf show and the cricket show and the football and the cricket and away I went.
0: Yeah, I remember those shows. They were great growing up mm. as kids. And and funny you mentioned the, the TUE 2GB. Because when I left school, I, I worked at 2GB with Peter Peters and Greg Hartley at the, on the football call and used to run out there getting the man of the match and things for him as well and some good times back in the late 80s.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Zorba and Hollywood, who could ever forget them? They were... Uh, Classics and uh, really good football callers, actually. Really good media talent. I never worked with them because of, you know, just sliding door moments. But a couple of events here and there, and obviously knew them both through Greg's combination with Canterbury Bulldogs. He was with them for a long time and Zorba up at Manly. But, uh, yeah, they were heady days, weren't they?
0: Oh, they were good. They were really good. As you went through nine, though, was there – there's times you'd started with the sport, like you said, but then you ended up on the Today Show and started moving to other – shows that Channel 9 had?
1: Yeah, so the, the big break for me came on the Kerry ann show, basically. They they needed someone to do the sport on the show and they asked me to come on and then I did that for the next few years and then from that got an opportunity on the Today Show back all those years ago and that's where I became very good friends with Tracy Grimshaw. We had dinner the other night. But, um, yeah, and my career just sort of took off from there and I had opportunities to work in, to, in news and then I, of course – uh, my last five years at Nine were on the Today Show again, so um, right up till when I left in 2019.
0: And that must have been a, a good gig, but also tough because what time are you got to get up in the morning? Your lifestyle would have had to really change.
1: Yeah, three thirty or three thirty, quarter to four. I tried to push back as far as I could, but um, <laughs> it's a very early start. Look, I, I am an early riser, but it was great though. Like we had a great experience, and I and I reflect really with wonderful memories on the the last few years because we had a Whole lot of success with Carl and Sylvia and Richard and the gang. The and we had a lot of laughs and look, we had this thing called We Love Australia and we travel all around the place. So look, it was fantastic and I have great memories. But yeah, it is early starts. You need to yeah, you need to get your body clock into gear because it's difficult at times.
0: <laughs> now in the media, as as you would have seen, it, it's you can have some tough times. Like it all depends on ratings and a lot of people. You know, get moved on quite easily. Did you find that you were nervous about that at any stage during your career? It was just the
1: dramas at the end being so public. I think that probably annoyed me more than anything else because I'm not a very public person. You know, I like to sort of I like to work, but as, as you as you know, we've met a few times. I'm I'm not big yeah. on red carpets and and publicity. So it came with a whole lot of publicity and a sort of. Lots of articles, but I mean that's just by the by. For me, it was the right time, you know, to move on. And I've been very lucky. Like that was the only real big change that I've had, and I'd been there for twenty three years. So, and I've been at Sky and doing my own thing for the next four years. I'd I'd be surprised if I would go. You know, I I quite enjoy being out of my own. So I, I'd be surprised at this stage of my life where I go back full time anywhere, but. The, you know, 23 years at one place, you know, most people don't even <coughs> stay for 10, do they, yeah, these that's days? That's right. Mm. That's right.
0: And you're enjoying Sky. I, I do watch some of the, the shows you're on there and it's, uh, they're quite entertaining.
1: Yeah, it's good. No, it's really enjoyable. They're good, good, good people to work for. And uh, we have that, that really exciting little show called Racing Dreams, which has been probably the highlight for me and getting to know a lot of people in the racing industry and, and becoming good friends with people like John Massara and James Harron, and I've always liked horses. We've got horses where we live. My wife's into eventing, and uh, I've got a, a few small shares, a few <laughs> the few odd <laughs> race horses. Some are, are better than others, but it's a great industry, good people, and, um, you know, I I've really like it, actually.
0: And you mentioned your brother, Kieran, um, earlier on. Was there any... You went to sport, and he went to more the politics side of it. Or was there a bit of competition
1: there? No, no, no competition. We were pretty support. Very, not pretty. We're a very supportive family. You know, like we've just been away on a golf trip to Queenstown together. Four of the boys. Uh, one of them's a non-golfer. We're trying to get him into it. But no, no not at all. Ironically, um, well, Kieran's a really clever guy. He always has been. He was school captain, nearly ducks of the college. I think, and did his masters in. Foreign Affairs at Sydney Uni. So you're talking, you know, top of the pops there, second in the Lions Youth of the Year public speaking. Uh, so he's always been at that real crescendo when it comes to clever and education. But, but the irony is that he was such a good sportsman. He played cricket for New South Wales under-16s and opened the bowling with Matthew Nicholson, who, of course, played with Australia, and Stuart Clark, who played for Australia. And Stuart Clark still says that he was the bowler of their generation. The only thing that stopped him was injured his shoulder playing football and had to come back and bat, and he batted and played second grade and, and played in England. So, in some of uh, some interesting times, I've interviewed John Howard quite a lot of times, the former prime minister, who's a great lover of sport. And nearly every time, uh, the, the discussion has started in and around some of the politicians versus media games in cricket in in Canberra, because Kieran's always got out there and smacked eighty, you know, and taken four catches. <laughs>
0: Mate, of all the sports you've called over the years, is there anything that stands out? One actual sport or or a call that you did?
1: Yeah, I, I think that it was the two Olympic Games. I'd have I, I find it hard to go down and refine them too much, but I thought the Vancouver Winter Olympics and the London the London Olympics were the were the two the two highlights for me. And I was down there at Exmouth when Australia won its first. A gold medal and, and, and had a bit of a roaming brief. I went from everything from, you know, from the sailing to gymnastics to athletics to hockey. And, and London was just shining beautifully that time. The only the only downer for me is being a massive golf fan. I, I'd just gone to St Andrews, which is fantastic. Me and a few mates played there before the Olympics. But Adam Scott was red hot for the British Open, if you can remember, back there 10 years ago. And we were in a pub in London watching the final day from Royal Liverpool and he just collapsed. So that was the only downer of that. But in uh, Vancouver, great town. We stayed down at Grenville Island and, you know, there for about seven weeks and, you know, the war on ice between the US and, and Canada. Yeah, when I reflect, it's been some amazing memories, yeah, some of, of opportunities to work in all sorts of spaces.
0: And you're talking about the golf. We, we played in a in – a... A charity out there at uh, Concord for the for the young golfers coming up with the academy out at it, uh, which was a great day.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Those that was fantastic, uh, and I and I love playing golf. I'm sort of around traditionally around that eighteen. I've been down to 15, 14 at times, but I play at the lakes uh, and, and I play as often as I can. It's it's just an amazing game. You can play it virtually till the day you drop and. Every golf course, no matter where you play, has got a different mood every day. So, yeah, that that day particular out there at their Concord was fantastic. And I love the fact they did it for junior golf, which uh, is a great help because everyone looks at the money and thinks, well, uh, there's all this cash floating. But it tends to go to the top tier and the top very small number of players. So it's great to be helping junior golf.
0: Yeah, it's good to um, see them come through. And a couple of them had a game with... With us a, a few of the rounds and they're doing the drives off the off the tee and it's amazing how how young they are but how well they're actually playing.
1: Oh yeah, thankfully they were there because um, <laughs> they they helped our score a bit. I actually played with Dougie Walters that day and um, we did okay, but the, so a few of those long bombs off the tee really helped. Yeah, it definitely
0: helped. It's uh, it, it saved uh, my score as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
0: But the other thing, there's, I don't know whether this is true or not, but the I found it that you've got a love of Willy Wonka and sound of music. Where does that come from?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've got a very eclectic um, <laughs> choice in music and entertainment. But from my youth, you know, like being in a large family and growing up in the 70s and early 80s, Friday nights was movie nights and Dad would bring Jubes home and we'd sit down and watch Bill Collins and... And I, I just love those two particular movies, and, and but all my kids get into it and thankfully my wife likes it. But I thought the Gene Wilder version of, uh, of Willy Wonka was amazing. He was such a great actor. Um, and I enjoyed him in Stir Crazy and all those other films he did with Richard Pryor. But yeah. uh, that, that, that original Willy Wonka, you know, we are the music makers and we are the dreamers of dreams. I loved it. And uh, the sound of music just so amazing in the nature of its music and the way it was made and the whole the whole movie was just epic and i loved it it actually uh, i don't know if there's any sort of synergy here but it sort of came out i think uh, the year i was born or my mum god rest her soul used to tell the story that they could they could go out and spend one day when they were still in hospital after having the baby and they chose to go and watch The Sound of Music while I was at the hospital. So I don't know; <laughs> it, it, it might just be coincidence. But yeah, I've, I, I love those movies. Yeah, I love, and I look for music. I, I mean, I love everything from Peter Allen's music to Cold Chisel. Midnight all. Yeah, I, I, I'm open to open to most stuff when it comes to the arts. I love going to see live plays and musicals. I often take my daughter, who uh, is really keen. My wife's not a massive musical fan.
0: Yeah, but it sounds like um, a yeah, wide range of music. It's Because uh, I remember growing up, and you'd be the same, you used to go and watch live bands all the time at pubs and, and clubs, and it was just a, a great era to, for live bands.
1: Oh, wasn't it? What? I mean, I must have seen Mondo Rock about 12 times with Ross Wilson and Eric McCusker. Then you had the Mentals and the Church and so many bands, that you, the Cure... The Hunters and Collectors came on later, In excess, Oil. I mean, it was phenomenal.
0: Eurogliders,
1: Machinations, they were, and they were always playing, weren't they? Richard yeah. Clapton.
0: Yeah, and I was lucky I grew up in uh, the eastern suburbs, so we, mm. we used to go down to Coogee Bay, the Salinas down there, yeah. at Coogee Bay, and I think, yeah, every every band in at that era all played down there.
1: Yeah, we, we travelled into Salinas quite a bit, and – um they used to that you know, like Dragon and, and all those other bands that I mentioned before, they'd often play at leagues. That'd be the place we'd tend to go to or yeah. even Sefton RSL are always gigging and it was a terrific time and I and I still love live music and um I notice I have got three kids, ten, thirteen, fifteen. They they all enjoy it when we are somewhere where there's some live music as well. Mm-hmm. We went to we went to the Tamworth Music Festival this year, which was great fun. Right.
0: Yeah, it seems to be the the kids are sort of liking the music from the 70s, 80s. They always seem to be playing it. I just can't seem to get my head around the DJ stuff at the moment. I'm just sort of trying to, with the young guys, but uh, I'm trying to get my head around it.
1: Oh, mate, yeah, don't try because <laughs> I, I don't like it. I um I don't want to sound old and crusty, but the rap music isn't my go. Yeah, I, I much prefer just putting on some old stuff.
0: Yeah, so do I, I, I. Uh... That's my go in excess and, and you two are probably my top top favourite bands over the years, but No, uh, oh,
1: yeah. What about Don't Change? I think it was one of their first yeah. songs, wasn't it? But what a cracking song.
0: Yeah, some great songs. And those type of songs will go on forever.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's it's hard to believe, you know, and we all remember, don't we, like where we were when, you know, Michael Hutchins died and and, and it's hard to believe he was only in his 30s but w- what a body of work what a body of work uh, um, they had
0: yeah that's right when you listen to the all, all their albums it sounds like they've been around you know playing for 50, 60 years there's so much in there
1: oh yeah and uh, every time you hear that, the songs come on you just your foot starts tapping doesn't it does 100% mm.
0: well Tim mate thanks for your uh, for coming on and, and chatting at the end of the interview I do I uh, do a segment, Five Fun Facts. So I'm going to uh, throw some uh, questions at you. You can answer them however you want.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, the first one is favourite takeaway food.
1: Oh, I'd have to say my favourite takeaway food is Indian. It's not always the favourite of the family. They love Thai, which, which you know, I'm quite partial to. You've seen me. i partial to most stuff. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I do love particularly the Northern Indian um, barbecued meats like the chicken ticker and things like that. I'd have to say that's my favourite
0: favourite childhood memory uh growing up you know
1: growing up in such a big family catching the old red rattlers to all the different sport you know going to Henson Park and catching the train to Lidcombe Oval and you know uh, getting lost at the gate and you know the announcement will the Robert and Timothy Gilbert please come back to the to the back <laughs> of the grandstand to meet their father yeah just just and going to the SCG you know and and you know, sitting in the bob stand or the hill stand, you know, getting the peanuts in the shell or sugar coated and watching those semi finals with uh, St. George and Para and Manly and Para and all that era in the late 70s, early um, early 80s.
0: Mate, cats or dogs and why?
1: Oh, I like them both. I, I call our place Josie's Animal Kingdom. My wife's got five oh. horses, two dogs, cat. It's all here. We've got ducks on the pond. So, no, I'm a definite animal lover.
0: What song do you have to sing along with when you hear it? I reckon it'd have to be Paul Kelly's
1: Dumb Things. I just love that song. I love everything from him and uh, that song uh, is just, yeah, it gets you going.
0: But if you're a DJ, what would your DJ name be?
1: Oh, It'd have to be the Round Mounder Sound, I think. (laughs) We used to use it occasionally in Goulburn. But, uh, yeah, the round mound of sound. hits the memories, 2G. And here's a bit of Paul Kelly.
2: <laughs>
0: great stuff, mate. It's, it's great to have you on. And and, and catch up. You know, they can watch you on Sky News. And you've also got your podcast. So if you can uh, what's the podcast again.
2: So we're a
1: daily sports podcast called Afternoon Sports. So, you know, just go to your, your favourite podcast app, download it, Afternoon Sports. Shane Lee, who, of course, played 45 one-day internationals for Australia there, the older brother of Brett, the you know very famous cricketer, and um, yeah, it's called Afternoon Sports. So go and have a listen. And Sky News is Saturday and Sunday mornings. I'm on uh, doing the, the news and Racing Dreams in the autumn and the spring.
0: Great stuff, Tim. And uh, you might we'll have to uh, catch up with a beer soon.
1: Look forward to it, Bruce.
0: Now let's go to Beach Banner. This week in the Beach Shack for Beach Banner, we've got Andy's back. How are you, mate? Good, Hopper. How are you, mate? Very good, very good. Now, you've been working at Bondi, you know, coming up three seasons now. Is there something that stands out? We do a lot of rescues. Is there a rescue that stands out in your time at Bondi?
2: Oh look, yeah, I'd, I'd probably have to say uh, it was last season. I think we had a, a guy down the down at Bucky's was in trouble, and he, he basically I saw the whole thing develop, you know developer uh, he was chasing his football, the ball went out in the rip and I was t- doing the PA announcement trying to get him in and he obviously wasn't listening to me and he got sucked right out and the guy couldn't swim, you know, and uh, he was in a pretty heavy situation. There was a big ways breaking and I remember going out grabbing him and he had just had no direction of actually getting how to get on the board. So it's one thing I've really learned since I've been up at Bondi is that non communication with non English speaking background people. <laughs> <laughs> and I've finally got him on the board but I just clearly remember just set after set it was trying to get this guy on the board, all these surfers around me helping me finally got him on the board and got him back. But I suppose I've done, you know, hundreds of board rescues in my, in my career and yeah, that one kind of stands out for me because it was, it was really challenging. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'd say that probably one of the niliest little board rescues I've had down there. And they can be difficult too, can't they? Because you get multiple people that could be
0: grabbing your board. And the other one I've noticed is with the young guys, is you've got to prioritize as you're paddling out. You might have three or four people, three heads sitting there, yeah, and you've got to go for the worst case scenario and leave the others until you know you, you can round them up later.
2: That's it, yeah. And obviously, that that day I had a backup as well. Mm. One of the other boys came out with me, and um, yeah, I, I clearly remember because I was two of them in that rip that day, and, and yeah, it's just prioritizing in your patience, um, and getting them on the board. and. Uh, and like I just touched on before, you know, some of them can't speak English and they get on the board the wrong way and they're facing you the wrong way and there's waves coming in. And, yeah, just that communication with them, you know, it, it can be pretty pretty full on, especially in the heat of the moment too when when the adrenaline's pumping as well. Yeah, so that, that can be a bit heavy sometimes. And I suppose leading on to that as well, like, you know, you look at the guy we pulled out of the water I think towards the end of the summer, Hopper last year, the guy that was in, uh, right in the deep, deep south. And, you know, same thing again from Sri Lanka. Um, you know, that was a real heavy rescue we had down there that afternoon. Yeah, it can be pretty
0: um, difficult. And trying to keep an eye on everybody with massive crowds and all the standard of, of you know, swimming, most people haven't even had any experience in the water from where they're coming from
2: no exactly right yeah and, and, and as we've seen in the last probably you know probably three or four months at Bondi now is we're getting a lot more uh, international tourists coming in you know COVID's um, over now and, and the tourists are coming back and, and I anticipate a really uh, busy summer up there and I think all the boys are as well I think it's going to be a, a pretty full-on full-on full summer ahead
0: yeah, it looks like it's going to be busy and uh, starting to get back to how Bondi was pre-COVID.
2: Yeah, so that's something that I haven't quite experienced yet. So, uh, yeah, we'll just see how I roll with that one. But, yeah, I, I think I'm going to be just fine. I, I did get Rookie of the Year, if you remember, last year as well. But at the age of 50. Yeah, that's not, that's not a bad effort. At least you got acknowledged. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) So I must have existed on the beach at some
0: point. Right, Andy, thanks, mate, coming in and having a chat in the beach shack.
2: No worries. Cheers, mate.
0: (laughs) Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This week's letter in the mailbag is from... Patricia, and she's from Victoria, she's saying that this summer a lot of people have drowned in Victoria, inland and and flat water. What's the reason that this is happening? Well, Patricia, uh, probably a few reasons. We've had a lot of hot weather. A lot of people haven't been going down to the beaches or, or the waterways as much over the last couple of years. But it comes down to people that panic And it pretty much, it's called deep water shock. So people go into any waterway, whether it's a river, lake, the ocean, and they're standing knee depth, waist depth. But it's when they take those extra few steps and then suddenly they can't stand up, they're in deep water, the panic sets in, they take that first gulp of oxygen, which potentially could be when their head is going underwater and they swallow water. And then that's the start of the drowning process. So that's why we're telling everyone if you do get into deep water, you feel like you're getting a bit panicky to just float, lie on your back and float or tread water, which we call active floating. And the longer you can float, the more chance someone will come and rescue you. So it's a a message that we're trying to get out there and it minimises the panic as well. So thanks, Patricia, for your letter. I hope that helps. And I'll catch everyone next week. Thanks everyone for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts. And hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, Beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.